Hey everyone, today we are continuing with our third episode on disordered eating, and we are going to give you a primer on intuitive eating today. And intuitive eating is an eating style that promotes a healthy attitude towards food and body image. And it's the idea that you should eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. And it sounds a lot easier than it is. So we have an expert, Ashley Selman, registered dietitian, who is not only an amazing dietitian, but an amazing woman. And when she talks, I feel emotional just hearing her talk about food and body image. And she's so grounded. She gives me such peace as a clinician and as a mom and as a woman. And I'm so excited that you all are going to get to hear her talk about intuitive eating. She's the best. Take a listen and enjoy. And if you like it, remember to follow our podcast or share it because she's going to be back on for more. And we're going to be back on talking more about disorder eating. Thanks so much. Welcome to Podcast Therapist, presented by Virginia Family Therapy. I'm Sarah. I'm Caroline. And I'm Amanda. As three family therapists, we know how hard it is to feel like you're being the parent you want to be while juggling everyone's needs. We specialize in helping families just like you during the long days of multitasking and constant searching for the bar of success. Our podcast mixes expertise, real life advice, and embarrassing stories. Whose embarrassing story? (laughs) Yours. (laughs) Let's walk through this together. Welcome to Podcast Therapists. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Sarah. We have one of our favorite people with us today. I'm so excited. Oh, a million. We are continuing our conversation about disordered eating and body image. And we've gotten a lot of, you know, we've actually gotten a lot of feedback around our other podcasts and it's made us be really thoughtful. And so we are excited to have a true, true expert on the podcast today, Ashley Selman. RD registered dietitian is here in full effect. Hi, Ashley. Hello, guys. So Ashley is a in private practice. She's located in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, She can see folks all over the country. I'm just telling you that right now, because every time Ashley speaks, I hang on to every single word that she gives us. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about the topic uh, just a primer on intuitive eating and what is intuitive eating. Sarah, how long have you ever heard about intuitive eating in general? So I have to say that I've been practicing now 30 years. And I believe that I had heard, I think Ashley Selman may have introduced me to this concept mm-hmm. and may have really defined it for me. I think I may have heard it the last, just the last couple of years. And I think I didn't even really know what it was, Ashley, till you presented to our practice. And then I realized how many mistakes I'd made with my daughter, but I have rectified some of those. I'm proud to say, but um, yeah, intuitive eating was just new. It wasn't something I was taught. It wasn't something I knew as a person it was, it, but it makes so much sense and it's so easy in so many ways. Mm-hmm. So Ashley, can you start by telling us, you know, a little bit about what intuitive eating is and why it is the way we should be I guess, talking about food and thinking about feeding our bodies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's interesting that you even posed the question that way because intuitive eating is basically how we're designed to feed ourselves, take care of ourselves. The idea that food 
should have rules around it and categories and there should be all this thinking about it really isn't relevant when the body is actually designed to communicate constantly with us what we need, how much we need, when we need it, and what combinations that we need things. And so intuitive eating is this this idea, this biological basis that we are born biologically intact with ourselves, that our body is designed to constantly be assessing whether or not it's in balance and what it needs to stay in balance. And that is true in terms of whether we need sleep or we need to be with people or don't need to be with people. We need to journal. We need to be quiet. We need you know, whatever it is, food is the same. When we're hungry, the body is designed biologically to release hormones to tell us that we're hungry. When we're full, the body is designed to release hormones to tell us that we're full. The body is able to assess very specifically what its needs are in terms of macronutrients, the big nutrients, micronutrients, the small nutrients. And those things come through in specific desires for specific foods at specific times and specific amounts. The body knows how to give us all of that information. It's intact from the time that we're born. And unfortunately, we really lose connection with those messages. And so food, instead of being very intuitive, becomes externalized. We make decisions based on what somebody else is doing or what the latest book is saying or what the latest diet is saying. And in the process of doing so, we lose connection with being able to hear and listen to our own body's internal wisdom. So one thing I want to say, even just like hearing this is I've heard you say this before. And every time you speak, I'm like, I need to hear more of everything that Ashley has to say. And I feel like it triggers so many thoughts and intense feelings and like, oh, well, I've messed up that and that's not me and I'm doing it. And I guess I want to say to the listeners, that's really normal if you're having that response. And I bet, Ashley, you probably encounter that everywhere you go is every single person in the world has a relationship with food and their body and and you just kind of trigger it. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) I'm glad we're here so we can learn how to get all of that crap out of the way. (laughs) So we can get back to being like, okay, I'm okay. And my body's okay. And I think the two of us are in this together and we've got this covered. I completely hear you. I joke with my clients all the time that it's like we're born and then just in breathing the air in our culture, there's kind of no way we can get through without being totally confused about how we're supposed to feed ourselves and how we're supposed to feel about our bodies. And it's an incredibly confusing experience. And I'd say most parents are very confused about how they're supposed to and what they're supposed to do with their children. But we were also brought up in cultures where our parents were very confused about what to do with us. So it's an ongoing sort of perpetual cycle. And my message with people is to really simplify it and to be able to know that there's always the ability, the body is always working for us. So there's always the ability to be able to learn how to be more in touch with it for ourselves and to do that for our kids. It's a very positive story. I think part of what happens, it, it triggers a whole bunch of stuff because again, we're taught from very young ages, essentially like, I'm glad you're born. Thanks for being on this planet. Now, let me teach you how it works. You should feel shameful about your body. You should feel that something's wrong with you constantly and you should try to control and organize your food at all times. 
And so that's what we do. And it makes us really unhappy and often very unwell. And for a lot of people, it can make them very sick. And so to to hear that there's a, a different way to understand it is overwhelming, certainly, for a lot of people. And that's completely understandable. Talk a little bit more about what it is and the body signals and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, obviously the body is quite complicated. So for the purposes of kind of simplifying a lot of this, I like to use small newborn babies as a really good example of this. I do this with my clients a lot when we're trying to learn more about what is hunger and what is fullness. So for anybody who's had a a newborn or who has been around a newborn, you can recognize if you really watch them that, you know, let's say they're asleep. And then they start waking up. And typically when a newborn is waking up, it's because they're starting to get hungry. But what you'll notice in a newborn is that they don't start crying right away. If you really watch them, they at first start making funny faces. They start wrinkling their nose and making funny little movements with their mouth. And it's usually pretty quiet. That's an early sign of hunger. We have the same thing as children, teenagers, adults early signs of hunger, very hard to describe when I ask people, what is hunger? And often their answer is, it's when my stomach hurts. When my stomach hurts or when I have a headache or when I'm nauseous, those are all very late signs of hunger. Early hunger is much more nuanced. It's that little wiggle that the newborn shows. It is a very kind of like, I feel like I could use something. I feel like just something's a little off. That's coinciding to some very gradual drops in our fuel supply, our blood sugar, what other hormones are doing in the body. And essentially, it's just that we are starting to run out of fuel, i.e. food, that we ate maybe two or three or four hours ago. The body is designed to give us these early cues. And ideally, once we can read those early cues, we prepare to eat food. And as we eat food, we know when we're full because we could pick up on early hungry, we can now pick up on early full. And so we have this very nice, steady, gradual blood sugar line. I describe it to my clients as a wave. We're going for a gently rolling wave. We're eating regularly throughout the day and we're keeping ourselves very steady. In a newborn, if you don't feed them right away, you'll notice that they start to wiggle around more, their hand might get involved now and they're kind of hitting their face and they're trying to find their thumb. They're rooting around trying to find a nipple. The action of the body starts to become a bit more exaggerated. Same thing for children, adolescents, adults, as we get older, we start to have a more intense sense of hunger of like, I really need to eat something. I'm getting really hungry versus like, I feel I could use something. And if you still don't feel feed a newborn, They will start to really wiggle around and move and get mad and start to make a lot more noise. And if you still don't feed them, they will obviously start to cry. Intuitive eating essentially is the idea that we need and want to be picking up on both our own cues for hunger early and certainly our small child and then teaching our children to trust those cues so that they know when they're hungry and they know how to respond to it as they get older. I'm already like thinking about my children and their early hunger cues that I miss constantly, mostly because I feel like I'm too busy, but this isn't about guys next week. We're launching into all the ways that we fuck this up. Sorry for dropping (laughs) that bomb. So, okay. I got this. Now, what about the, 
what about the full signs? Like how, how are we supposed to recognize full signs? Mm -hmm. So full signs also have the same sort of spectrum. They start with an early sense of full, which is for a lot of people also very difficult to describe because we're not used to being just pleasantly full. Just like, yeah, I think I'm good. I think I'm done. We're used to being overly full where we might feel some sense of pressure and discomfort or too full where we really feel like we've actually made ourselves sick. And certainly for my clients that I work with and for so many people who don't know how to listen to their own internal signals or to add when we don't know how to listen to our own internal signals, we often lose the ability to even notice them. So for example, a lot of people who don't know how to pick up on hunger early only recognize hunger, like I was saying, as a late signal. When that's the case, it's very difficult to stop when you're pleasantly full. If we get too hungry, we are designed to eat until we are too full. So they kind of go hand in hand together. And so then people get in this rhythm where they're too hungry, too full. And then unfortunately, because we put so much morality into food and into our bodies, too full for a lot of people equates to, I did something wrong. I should feel badly about this. I'm upset with myself for this. What is wrong with me? And then we kind of complete the cycle all over again. So full is really only able to be identified this like pleasant, full, sustained, a sense of satiety feeling when we're able to have a better understanding and relationship with our hunger. That makes sense. And so I'm thinking about as a parent, because already I'm like, well, what about school and when they feed them at school? And yeah, don't get me started. I had this conversation with my son this morning. He's like, they won't let me. And I was like, I'm a dietitian and I get to say, and I'm going <laughs> to call them and I'm going to write a letter and say that okay. you're allowed to have snack in the middle of the morning. Great. Mm-hmm. I'm like in my kids too, yeah. because I think, and I think what we see, especially for the teenagers that we see clinically is kind of, they go to school They might eat a little bit, even if they're eating a full lunch, it can still Mm -hmm. be a really long time until they come home from school and then they eat a lot when they come home from school and then they feel really badly about it. Yeah. Or they get so hungry that they're at the point that they are like past hunger Mm -hmm. and then they're nauseous and exhausted and they have a headache and they're tired and apathetic and sort of shut down. An overall joy to be around. I think, oh, when, yes, just saying, but I think also, you know, I was just thinking as you're talking about that part, like then a lot of, like we work with a lot of athletes, a lot of the athletes then head off to practice. And I just recently have been, you know, I just started thinking about this more around high school versus college, you know, all those college athletes, a lot of them have all these fueling stations in their, in their college setting, like they have uh, nutritionists and dietitians assigned to their team. So they have, and it's interesting, you know, we don't do that for anybody under 18 mm-hmm. when we should be doing it really early with our kids, not yeah. waiting till they get to college level sports to be giving them that information. I couldn't agree more. Wow. I just, I feel like every time I listen to Ashley talk, I just stop t- think, like, I can't think I just am listening. Mm-hmm. And then every moment is a mic drop. So I can't even think of anything to say to you, Ashley, but <laughs> sweet. Um, we'll just say with that teenagers are not fun to be around. No child is fun to yeah. be around. and They've gone too long without eating. And there's a reason yeah. for that. 
So can you talk a little bit about how we should parent this like from infancy through adolescence? Because I understand it conceptually. I really do. Because I also, I really go into this like evolutionary psychology piece where essentially like Mm -hmm. if your body is sending you hunger, hunger signs, sorry, Ashley, like, please correct me on all of this, but if your body is sending you hunger signs and you don't respond, you automatically become more anxious because your body thinks that you're starving. Correct. Right. So we're automatically more anxious. The second we don't respond to feeling a little bit hungry and that's how we survived for years and years. And then we send kids to school. We don't feed them when they're hungry. And then of course they're all anxious messes, right? Well, mm-hmm. and they're not they're I mean, the focus goes out the window with a kid who's hungry too, because they're then the focus becomes internal because they're uncomfortable with their bodies. Oh, I mean, am, am I wrong, Ashley? Sorry. No, gosh, but, no, not at all. Not at all. And so then focusing on any sort of information coming in would be very difficult. And our brain is not designed to. So if we have not been properly fueled, and especially if this is an ongoing pattern, the brain is very very designed to note when there is potential danger Um, and not to get too off topic, but you know, the idea that this body that we're in is designed quite beautifully, but it's also not necessarily designed for this particular environment that we're living in. It's not designed to go to school and be in a school building all day where we don't have access to feed ourselves when we need to, or go to the bathroom when we need to, or run outside when we need to. So part of what we're experiencing is that when we don't feed ourselves, the brain can't really make a whole lot of rational sense out of that. You know, 3,000 years ago, there wouldn't be really a reason why I would intentionally choose not to feed myself enough food day after day after day. So the brain's perception of that is that something must be wrong. And to Amanda's point, we are designed to be more in a sympathetic nervous system, a fight or flight or freeze response. We're designed to be more anxious to have more racing thoughts, to not be able to focus and concentrate as well. And then for some particular people who are also potentially predisposed to more eating disorder behavior, for example, not eating enough and over-exercising are actually the catalyst into the development of an eating disorder. So this is relevant for everybody to be able to learn how to connect and listen to and trust our bodies, but it's certainly relevant for our at-risk youth who these things can actually turn into quite significant issues. So practical, what we're looking at, and, you know, again, the positive about this is that there's always things that absolutely every single age, um, and even if your kids are out of the house. There's still things that we can do. There's still things that we can do for ourselves. This is a very positive, positive conversation, even though it can come across filled with a lot of heavy content, let's just say. Um, So practically what we're talking about is that when we're starting to feed our kids, the idea is that we're really trusting that our child, our baby, our infant, our one-year-old, our two-year-old, that they are put together just right, that their body is designed to know what it needs and when it needs it. And what we do is we use something that's called the division line. And it was originally developed by a woman named Ellen Satter. And she kind of coined this idea and put it into some practical perspective for us that a parent's 
job, if you will, their responsibility to their child is to buy, prepare, and serve food. And that once the parent has done those jobs, buy, prepare, and serve food, that it's the child's right to their own body to be able to listen to their body and to decide what, when, how much, and if they are going to eat of those foods that have been prepared and served. So the idea is, let's say you are making dinner and as a parent, you've decided you are going to have whatever you're going to have for dinner. You are obviously, and this is where we could get into about 15 different like tidbits underneath this. You're obviously not putting a bunch of things on the table that you know your child has never touched before and likely will never will, but you're putting foods on the table that you've chosen that will be part of dinner or balanced dinner. You're covering protein, you're covering carbohydrate, you're covering fat, there's a vegetable, fruit, et cetera, basic food groups. But then once you've put those foods and you've made those foods available, your child then gets to read their own signals for that particular meal to decide what of these foods feel safe to me? What of these foods look good to me? What of these foods feel like what I need right now? And that we give the child the ability to listen to those cues in that particular moment. Because three hours later, two hours later, they're in a totally new body. And they're going to need to listen to those cues in that particular moment. And the next morning for breakfast, they're going to need to listen to those cues for that breakfast. When we give children the right to be able to make those decisions, then we are essentially keeping the biological hardwiring, the internal connection with our needs intact. So practically as an overarching view, that's what it looks like. Obviously, there's we could talk about this for hours, but that's the basic tenant that we start with, with all families. And what we find is that when families do that and when parents work on recognizing the neutrality that then happens once they stop worrying about it, the child is actually really good at being able to regulate themselves and fluctuate with their own individual needs. Parents get less stressed, children are less stressed, and kids often will actually have much better relationships with food. So I believe this because I've heard you say it before, and I know how hard it is practically when you're in a mealtime to make this happen. And I'm sure you've heard every single question. Like I have a kid who refuses food and then melts down 30 minutes later. And I have a kid who will just eat, you know, peanut butter and jelly all day, every day. So what mm-hmm. are the major caveats that you find to this? And, and what are the tools and solutions that you offer families? Sure. Great question. Yes. I've heard absolutely every possible thing. I've worked with every possible thing. So part of the answer to that is it depends to some degree on each individual story. A lot of times what we're looking for, if a family is noticing that they're having a lot of issues with their child being, let's call it picky, let's call it particular, let's call it very emotional, right? Like the, you know, the fits and the breakdowns or I won't eat that, but I will eat five cookies. We're looking for what are the dynamics that are going on there? So it could be many different things. 
if I work with a family and we really start using this division line approach and I'm giving them a lot of the individual pieces underneath it, generally we will find that eating it so much easier and so much clearer, but it is an approach that has to be consistent. It does not happen overnight, certainly. And obviously for families who have not been approaching food that way, often it will get worse before it gets better as with so many things. Wait, can I interrupt you really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. Only because I think you said the division line and I think, I don't know if you said this part out loud, but the division is between you as the adult and the kid as the eater. So is that correct? And when you're talking about the division line, the division between one body and another body, no matter who is in charge. Exactly. Right. Like how in the world am I supposed to know what my four-year-old needs to put in his body? I'm not in my four-year-old's body. And nobody knows what I need to put in my body because nobody's in my body. It's exactly that idea. Two individual bodies and the, the middle, right? So if you imagine that I as a parent and then am trying to, let's say, force food upon one of my children, I am now basically telling that kid who is looking at that thing going, that looks gross. That looks scary, right? Like it's a good thing that we don't eat all the mushrooms in the forest, Like it's designed into us to have some degree of like, I'm not so sure about that thing. If I'm forcing it, that child is basically learning from me. Even more so that food is gross. B, I'm stronger than you, mom. I'm going to push back, right? I will sit at this table for five hours and I still won't touch that thing. We haven't learned anything. We haven't gotten anywhere. And essentially what we're doing is that instead of me supporting my kid, knowing how to read themselves, I'm basically putting this piece of food in between us saying, here's something for us to use as control between each other. Here's something for us to use as a manipulation between each other. And so sometimes what will happen is kids will then learn how to manipulate with food. And often we'll see that in terms of really picky eating habits, really particular eating habits, a lot of meltdowns around meals. And those are all things that with some consistent, intervention and some very, very patient parents, because it's not particularly clean or pretty or easy in the beginning to unwind it, it can get a lot better. There are also though some kids that are really texturally sensitive. For instance, there might be some very sensory oriented kids. We might have some early signs that there's some sensory texture stuff going on, which we approach similarly, but also with a little bit more process in terms of trying to introduce new textures and doing exposures with kids to make things safer for them. Temperamentally, some kids are also just more accepting of new things than other kids. So I know I personally have a teenager who, when he was small, like we had to talk through every single thing 8 million times before we even went to the grocery store. Okay, we're going to park in the grocery store, then we're going to get out and then we're going to walk in and we're going to start this aisle first. And this is about how long it's going to take So it's not surprising that he wouldn't touch anything new until about 10 to 15 times of seeing somebody else even eat it, right? Where you might have another kid who's like, oh, whatever, what are we eating? And might not think anything of it. Temperamentally, we do a lot of work with helping parents understand the temperament of their child because it absolutely affects how that kid will eat and what the reactions to their parents will be around their eating. Part of what I remember, you know, talking to some families about, but also when kids will talk about 
sometimes is that they'll, they will start to sense the frustration their parents are feeling with them. Right. And that then also dictates how they're feeling not only about themselves, but also just about food at the mm-hmm. table. Yep. And so this, like this approach does definitely kind of give that boundaries and safe boundaries in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, and I don't think we do stop and think about this very often, but the amount of emotion that comes with not eating someone's food sometimes, or, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't know, I, I just, you know, no families will talk about, well, you know, my mom has been cooking for two hours and I just didn't want to eat it. And then she got really mad at me or thing. And that's all, that's emotion. Absolutely. The focus is definitely food, but like you said, like you're separating the other issues also in this, which is really important. And and food can be emotional, right? Just as if it can be social and it can be an experience. It can be emotional in the sense of, I love being with my mom and I love watching her cook and I love eating her food. But the part of I'm then going to then disregard my body having its own particular needs to override myself to protect somebody else is not healthy boundaries, whether we're talking about food or we're talking about anything else in relationship. So food in this case often will give us sort of a signal of some of these relationship boundaries. And when food has become emotional, when we categorize foods as good and bad and healthy and unhealthy. For most people, I, you know, who knows for most people, maybe that doesn't harm anybody and it doesn't do anything of damage, but we run the risk for a lot of people and certainly for a lot of youth that the message that is actually received is, for example, this food is bad and I have now eaten this food and therefore I am bad. And that is pervasive, certainly with all the clients that I see. I think it's pervasive with a lot of people in general. And it certainly is not where we want people to be. The morality, the emotion getting completely embroiled into the food. We want the food to be neutral. And we want to have a positive relationship with it, I think is the best way to put it. And one thing I sometimes, and actually I could be talking about it all wrong because I find, you know, I find the eating stuff so hard and I'm just like putting my foot in my mouth all the time. But I do, I can talk to some kids about food becoming like a currency in their household, right? It's how you're communicating so many things to your parents and how your parents are communicating so many things to you. And I think a lot of times as parents, we are like, we are feeding our kids. We are providing them with these healthy, nourishing meals. And I want them to have that because I want them to know that I love them. But that's also me ascribing a feeling to it and getting in their, getting in their division line, right? So I would say that, that that is really only true if you are then also dictating how much they need to eat. Yes. And no, you can't have more pasta before you eat your broccoli, for example. And I know these are very common things that happen. So again, not to like pick on things, but essentially you what you just described is that you are interacting with your family. You're engaging with your family. You're role modeling for your family. We do need to eat. <laughs> like, let's not forget. It's important. We need fuel we need to be together. Eating together is an incredibly important part of childhood development for conversation and social skills and confidence. 
So what I hear in that is that you are using it as a way to be engaging in the family. And that's beautiful. Where we want to steer away from is then as a separate body, to your point, as you said before, then making assumptions about, I also know what you need. Or I see something about you that I don't like, right? For example, I'm worried my kid's going to get chubby. And so I'm now changing the rules about what you're allowed to eat or how much you're allowed to eat or when you're allowed to eat. That's where the division line gets crossed. When the parent, when the outside person, when the school, for example, starts making these these pushes across that space to then take away that child's right to be able to have a connection with themselves. So every time I've had this conversation with you, and I even had it with a coworker the other day, it's kind of like, if you put cookies on the plate, which we talked about in our last podcast, if you put it on the plate originally, they're going to eat that. And what do we also do about this obesity epidemic? So I'm sure you've heard all the parents say, if you give them all of these options, they're just going to fill themselves with sugar and gain weight, and then they're never going to be successful. Right? End of story. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. that's, the, that's, what, that's what people are saying in their heads. Right. So it's one of my favorite questions because I think it really helps us get at, again, a lot of the base roots of what we actually need to be talking about. The body is not designed to overeat. Body is not designed to be too full. The body is not designed to eat large quantities of something that make us feel sick. We are only designed to do those things if we are too hungry, if we've been restricted, or if a food has not been allowed, and so we don't know how to relate to it. So if you follow the division, that includes bringing all kinds of things into your house so your children know how to have cookies in the cupboard and eat the blueberries in the fridge instead. What happens when children are restricted, there's rules around these foods, and they happen in all kinds of different ways, right? Either, no, we don't buy those things, or we don't eat those things, or we only have those things on Sunday, or we don't eat ice cream, but we can get it because you got an A on your paper. Right, it can be a number of different ways, all fully good intended. But actually, what we're teaching is a couple of things. One, we're not teaching our kids how to know how to have a normal relationship with these foods as a neutral food, just like any other food. Two, what we find is that then when children are then around these more sweet, you know, dessert processed, salty kinds of things which from a biological standpoint are highly palatable, right? There's no getting around that. We are designed for pleasure and they're highly palatable, but they don't know how to relate to them. They don't know how to eat them because they're not allowed to eat them. So we always tell this sort of example of, I've, I've heard this a million times in my practice with my clients that, you know, certain foods weren't allowed in their homes and then they would go to their friend's house and their friend's house, they were allowed to have them and they would eat all of them. Children who are normally allowed to experience how to find hunger and fullness with all foods, they have a much better relationship with knowing how to actually consume those foods. 
And again, like I said, we're not designed to overeat. So when we're eating regularly and we have a good connection with hunger and fullness biologically, we are not designed to overeat. We're not designed to eat six cookies and make ourselves feel sick. We might have one or two because it sounds good. Or you might look at the cookies and be like, yeah, I don't really feel like that right now. I feel like something else. Does this really work, Ashley? It does. (laughs) Are you sure? It does. (laughs) I have to say, like, I think, Amanda, you would agree with me too. And Caroline, if she were able to be with us today, would also speak to this. But one of the things you've kind of mentioned too is this feeling bad part. And a lot of the, especially the teens that we work with, some college kids will talk about feeling guilt and shame around food. And guilt is feeling that you're doing something bad and shame is that you are bad. And it's interesting, I, you know, hearing you talk about this, it's making me think how early those messages probably start. Mm-hmm. And and may not take hold till a little later. I've always been a little curious at how a young, you know, kind of a preteen could say to me, "Oh, I just feel so guilty if I eat that." When I'm like, "Wow, you know, guilt's a pretty heavy concept." And now, as we're talking, I'm like, "Oh, I think I'm getting how early this might start, and how that then becomes part of their vocabulary pretty quickly." Mm-hmm. I, I'm so glad you 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 said that, and it brings up for me too that I, I have worked over the years with so many clients who their families did this beautifully. They really, they, they had beautiful relationships with food in the home. They did not have parents who were confused or struggling with how to help support their children to eat. And they really picked it up in the environment, in the culture that is out there. And so the guilt and shame might develop a little bit later and it might look a little bit different and then we also have people who it is, it's there pretty early on. And again, it's not about blaming parents at all. Like we all do the best we can. I mean, my, my 16 year old ate two small yogurt cups before high school this morning. And my immediate internal reaction is hold him down and force feed him to eat more because that is certainly not enough food. So the, the guilt and shame gets picked up really early and it's, it's very much played out in these very small dynamics of learning that food is somehow connected to our okayness and it just doesn't get anybody anywhere. It doesn't help anybody. And then as therapists and dietitians, we're spending so much of our time helping our clients relearn how to have boundaries and trust themselves and believe in themselves. And for me personally, with the work that I do, it certainly starts with practicing with food. It's a good foundation for that overall work. And yes, it does work. It takes time. It takes time. If if it's not how your family is functioning right now, my guess is you're probably kind of miserable. I've never talked with a family where it's not miserable as humans, but miserable around mealtimes. I mean, it's, um, it's just not pretty. The kids aren't liking it. The parents aren't liking it. Everybody's kind of miserable and worried. Um, and it can be very, very different. It takes some time, but we can absolutely get out of those patterns. And then what my families tell me is like, gosh, it's just mealtime's actually pleasant now. It's just an enjoyable experience. And I'm just not worried about it. There's so much worry and fear and that gets sort of taken off the table, if you will. And then everybody everybody is having a better time of it. I think for me, even just hearing it, I'm, I'm more in this spot where I'm like, Oh, I need to do a better job of making sure I have a range of foods available at multiple times of the day. Because I think when you have 
you know, five people living in a house on different schedules, they all have different bodies and, and there is an ease in having people eat together and it is important to eat dinner together. And they also might need to have a snack two hours later and that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we need to eat about every two to four hours during the day and kids need to eat about every one and a half to three hours. They're like little machines. They, they need food and they need it often. And then their needs obviously spike again in adolescence when they're going through their growth spurt. So having food, again, you're, you're buying it and bringing it into the house, but having food available for them because of our crazy schedules, um, instead of making them wait necessarily, right? Like, and this is, this is a good example of something we could probably talk, you know, like for an hour more about, because there's a lot of nuances within that, um, but having that variety of, and those things present, I'm a big fan of snack plates. This is the thing I do with a lot of my families where I'll just have the parents put like a platter um, or a plate out on the table, on the bar, whatever, that just has a variety of different things. So you might have fruits on it, vegetables, cheese, cookies, chocolate, whatever, you know, beans, it could be anything. And it's just like little, little nibble foods. And it's really interesting because it's a good example of it. I often have families start off with this and what they'll find is in the beginning, the kids are eating all the cookies and not much else. And you keep doing it. And what you'll find over time is they'll start eating the other things too. And they will really, it's a good way for them to practice kind of coming back to these intuitive practices, a little of this, a little of that. Um, It's a good way to practice getting started. And it's also a good way when you have lots of people in your family and everybody's running around you're keeping people fed. You're not the one who's necessarily making every single snack for each of the five people. You're doing it once and then everybody's making decisions for themselves. It's a good, good option for snack times. I'm doing that. I'm like, I mean, even then I had a panic attack, like, oh, I'm going to have to make a snack plate, but I think I can do that, guys. I think I can do that. <laughs> Paper plate, bunch of stuff, put it on a plate. Give them we, call it, um, we call it pantry eating at my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we don't have a snack plate out. We've got a pretty small family. So all of a sudden I'll hear some like rustling in the band. I'm like, Are you, who's pantry eating? And it's just <laughs> snacking. You know, we're just like. <laughs> Ashley, this was an insanely helpful intro. And next week I, we're going to talk about even more practical tidbits, right? So that snack plate, we're going to have tons more of information specifically like that. And I cannot wait. You guys are amazing. If you want to find Ashley online, her website is nibblesandnuggets.com. And the name of her practice is InBody. Is it InBody anything after that or just InBody? InBody Nutrition Counseling. Oh, InBody Nutrition Counseling. Look out. And it's in like I am, like I'm in the body. I'm putting food in the body. I'm learning how to be in the body. Like the beginning of intuitive. I like it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice pickup. Okay, Ashley, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon, and I hope everybody has a great day. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye.